We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Zone Coverage Podcast Network. Feel like Kobe in the fourth quarter. This is let's go. This is the Dane Moore NBA podcast, and the Minnesota Timberwolves are three and zero, just as we all predicted. The Wolves have the best record in the NBA. This is weird. This show is brought to you by ZoneCoverage.com and the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. I am Dane Moore. Uh, if you are new to the show this season, this is a twice a week Timberwolves podcast with a little bit of NBA sprinkled in there. Mondays are typically with Britt Robson of The Athletic, and Thursdays are with my partner here at Zone Coverage, Charlie Johnson. Gerson Rosas, the Timberwolves president of basketball operations, pinch hit for Charlie last Thursday. Um, And this Monday, I'm pinch hitting for Britt, who is writing his first column of the regular season. So that means this show is just going to be me. We're going to do something a little bit different. And I'll, I'll do these from time to time this year, maybe if I'm on the, the road and just kind of a information dump of of what I'm seeing, what I've uh, gathered. And there's no kind of better time, I think, than this beginning of the year when we've spent all this time thinking about guessing what the Timberwolves are going to be. And we now have information, basketball games, to use as data points to say, this is what we thought was going to happen and it has proved to be true. This is where we were wrong, where we've been misguided. And I think it's it's been three full games that have exceeded expectations, but have also really kind of honed into the picture of what exactly this team is going to look like. So what I'm going to hit on today is what mostly what the offenses looked like. They weren't kidding about playing cat on the perimeter. So we will talk about what a, a Timberwolves offense with cat um, out there. He shot 9.7 threes per game. That is 29 total threes in three games. It took him seven games last season to shoot that many threes. It's a total change. He is absolutely um, 
dominated in this kind of quarterbacking of the offense role. He just was anointed or awarded the um, NBA Player of the Week. I have his stats here from, from this week. They are insane. Just a second as I pull them up. 32 points per game, 13.3 rebounds, five assists, three steals, two blocks, 51.7% shooting from three on those 29 attempts, a 30.4 usage rate, which is kind of in line with where he was last year after Saunders took over, a 65.9% true shooting percentage, which is unreal, but also actually includes free throws in that kind of aggregated percentage. And Cat, for some reason, has missed 10 free throws already this year after missing 74 total all of last season. The Wolves are also a plus 12.7 net rating, which means they've outscored um, opponents by 12.7 points per 100 possessions um, over the course of these three games. And I think mostly the reason he won the award is because the Wolves are 3-0. And that is, yes, again, I don't know how many times I'm going to say exceeding expectations on here, but they have certainly done that. So we're going to get into what that offense looks like running through camp, running through cat. We'll, uh, we'll talk about the ways it has been defined by three-point shooting and the other parts of the game, too, that have not necessarily gone away. They are still posting up. They are still running isolation. They are still running pick-and-roll, similar to how they did last season. It's just a system that's a little more selective in who is doing those things and where they're running them from. So we'll parse through the balance of all that on the offensive end. And then we also got to hit on uh, what this defense has looked like. They are surrendering 10.1 fewer points per 100 possessions, uh, defensively this year, which is obviously a massive shift. Um, and that just kind of begs the question of why. What what have they done differently? What are they doing on an individual basis differently? And what are they doing on a team basis? Hint, uh, it has not been as switchy as it was maybe pitched to be during the regular season. We are seeing a system that is a scheme that's pretty similar to what we saw actually when, uh, when Tibbs was here. And then also I just want to get into some player-specific things. Andrew Wiggins deserves um, credit, acknowledgement, and I mean, he he won, certainly won that Miami game last night and was a big part of the surge back against Brooklyn in uh, in the season opener. So we'll get into him. I also want to kind of talk about Travion Graham. Uh, last time we did this podcast, or I did this podcast, we didn't know who the fifth starter was going to be, and I know I've you know, wasted a lot of breath and guessing, oh, Jake Lehman or Josh Kogi or maybe Noah Vonley, and it turned out to be someone I wasn't expecting at all. Travion Graham, so I think it's worth noting, you know, what has he, what has he been for, the, for this group, and will he continue to be a valuable fifth starter? Will he continue to be the fifth starter in general? Is that going to change? Uh, other than that, it's we also should probably note what the rotation is. They've They've had 10 guys, and we can go through how that's worked, who's been working with who. Again, small sample size, but... Before this, we were just guessing if it was going to be Noah Vonley or Jordan Bell or Gorgie Jang, whatever it was, we now have some information. And then kind of really the only, I think, down note we have of the this whole first three games, and I don't want this to be a huge deal, but Jared Culver has, uh, has at best had a quiet start to the season. So we'll touch on that, but I do want to start with the offense. All right, so as I was saying before, I think – we are thinking of this team very much in the way that it looks, and that's having five players out on the perimeter, which is leading um, to more threes from Cat. But what we're also seeing is this team likes to isolate, and it likes to run pick and rolls, and it likes to post up, largely Cat. 
those are all tenets of this team's identity from last season. What is interesting, I think, is is that they're asking specific players to isolate. They're asking specific players to be using be used in the pick and roll. And largely, for a lot of these player-specific things, it's Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns. We're seeing this team um, basically run about the same amount of isolations as they did last year. From I know it's only it's only been three games, but last year, 6.7% of their possessions were isolation focused. And this year they've been they've had 5.9% of them. And when you consider that, you know, Derrick Rose was a big part of this team, isolating Andrew Wiggins was a big part of that team. It's interesting that it's only three games, but that we're still at kind of that same rate. And that's basically because what this offense has been is pace into the half court. And if they beat the defense down there, you know, they're going to look for a quick shot, a quick layup, a quick sort of cut into an easy bucket early. But if not, they're willing to slow it down and run a pick and roll, and run isolation. The reason they're 3-0, though, is because the effectiveness of those, of those isolation situations has gone up immensely. Again, three games, but last season they averaged 0.84 points per possession in isolation, which was the 19th best rate in the league. This year, they are at 1.05 in isolation, which is the eighth best so far out of the the games that have been played. And that's a that's a meaningful jump. And we're seeing that come from not only Carl Anthony Towns being able to take his man um, off of the dribble from the top of the key, but also what, what Wiggins has done. And for them to be able to have those be high efficiency shots, they're making 53.8% effective field goal percentage in those isolations you're seeing a meaningful difference in the overall effectiveness. Last year, they were 41% in isolation. So that's a big jump. And then also the, the added value is Wiggins and Cat are both getting to the free throw line in those situations. The free throw frequency is up from 12.2% on isolations to 18%. Then there's the pick and roll, which I think is kind of the been the most surprising to me as we have seen a ton of Andrew Wiggins, Carl Anthony Towns, high ball screen actions. Largely, I would say it hasn't been pretty, but you are, again, seeing um, effectiveness in that and a meaningful jump ahead from last season. It was 0.84 um, points per possession, again, in pick and roll as it was with isolation. Um, and that's up to 0.98 in the pick and roll so far in those three games. And again, it's Wiggins and Cat. And by focusing on those players rather than, you know, mixing in a Derrick Rose, Taj Gibson pick and roll, something like that. You, you're just fine-tuning it in a way where it is using the best players in those situations as much as possible. And then Jeff Teague and Shabazz Napier, when, they're, when they've been there as well, have also given a boost. So we're seeing the isolation, we're seeing the pick and roll, and we're seeing a big jump in, frequent, in efficiency in, in those senses. Now, the most... I think alarming to me, not alarming in a bad way, but noticeable change has been that they are still posting Cat up. The The frequency, um, they're seventh in post-up frequency through three games in the NBA. About 7% of their possessions, they're looking um, for the post-up. And while that's down a little bit from last year where 10% of their possessions were post-ups, um, it is still there. And I think there was a question with, okay, if you're going to have Cat on the perimeter, you're going to have five out. How are you going to still be able to use him in the post? And what we're seeing is when a team does move a smaller player onto Cat, 
to try and take away some of what he's able to do on the perimeter, they'll just walk him right down in the post. And they will they will look through for those post-ups where, as a team, they're averaging 1.13 points per possession, which is a huge jump over last year, which was 0.94. And that's considering that Cat was really good in the post last year. So it is very Cat-focused. But then they're also adding in Andrew Wiggins to post up a little bit. Last night, if you watched the Miami game, if you had Tyler Hero on him, he just went in transition. He went right down to the block, sealed his guy, and he just outstrengthed and outheighted Hero and just scored right over him. So, again, Cat and Wiggins, they're focusing on those two. When they're not playing in transition, they're not playing with pace, when they get into more of a slow-it-down half-court set, they're leaning on what they believe to be their, their two strongest assets. I think the biggest thing, though, while we've seen this working in the post is what has plagued Cat specifically so much is his turnovers when he's been double-teamed in the post uh, over the course of his career, particularly the, la- the last few years when he started seeing hard doubles. Um, he, he has, there's only been one turnover in post-up situations for the Wolves all year, and that is the only one in 24 possessions is a lot. The only teams who haven't turned the ball over in post-ups are Utah, but they've only posted up three times. Brooklyn, no turnovers, but they've only had three post-ups. Golden State, six post-ups, no turnovers. Houston, no turnovers, four post-ups. So basically, the team, the, the Wolves are a team who is posting up a lot, and they're not turning the ball over. And to be able to do that and have it be Towns as your guy there, that's a weapon. And I think so far, while there's been kind of in the middle of all the games, there's been a little bit of a... You know, trying to find the balance of do we want to be on the perimeter here? Is this the right situation to walk Cat down in the post? There's been some of a balance there, but largely, and particularly from an efficiency standpoint, they found a balance of using Cat. And maybe that's just when it's Cat, it's just always going to be good. It doesn't really matter where it is. That's kind of what it's been so far. Those numbers um, speak for itself. But to totally overhaul a system in the way that the Wolves had and to have only had a little bit of sort of gray area of what are we doing here I think that's I I think that's a big stride and I think it speaks to the notion that these guys have all been here in Minnesota since since September they've been running this style of play they've been working on you know it's kind of a five out set a lot of the guys describe it as kind of pick up basketball and then when you see a mismatch all right Cat's got a little guy on him we're gonna put him on the block all right Wiggins got a guy he can beat off the dribble we're either gonna set a screen for him we're going to let him take that guy off the dribble himself. And I don't know. It's kind of more of a structured pickup setting. And, and so far, it's, um, it's led, to, led to success. And I think that's, that's certainly something to be, to be pleased with as the overall ceiling of this offense is per, perhaps even higher than we thought to start the season. All right. And now for the defensive scheme. And I think – for those of you who have listened to this show, you know that I like to kind of broadly define defensive scheme by the way in which a team defends uh, ball screen action, a pick and roll. And I think that's just covering this team, a Tom Thibodeau team for the past few years. That's just kind of how it was. It was defined by, we heard him on the sidelines, screaming ice. We learned what the drop scheme was because the Wolves did it every single time. It was, it's what Tibbs had found his success in in Boston with KG as his dropping big man, as Joakim Noah did in Chicago for Tibbs there. And it's something he brought over to Minnesota. And for those unfamiliar to just kind of go over it, you know, the, the logic of running 
a drop scheme and kind of spoiler alert what I'm getting to is the wolves are still running this so it's you know kind of picture picture cat in this in the first few games the logic of the drop is to not have your big man come all the way out onto the perimeter and hedge or really show on a pick and roll but to kind of retreat towards the rim and in that situation if it works you're hoping to get the point guard to kind of take an on the run pull up mid-range two which as we know is you know, a shot that you want to live with if you're a defensive team. The problem was under Tibbs is they had kind of Cat live in the middle zone. He he would kind of backpedal with that guard who was coming at him. And that that really, um, it kind of takes some next level thinking. It's why KG was good at it because he was a basketball IQ genius, particularly on the defensive end. And Joakim Noah was as well. Cat really kind of struggled um, in in that backpedal element of it the reason, though, I think we, we've seen success or, or where we didn't see success in that old scheme was that it just that wasn't the best thing for Cat to do. And it broke down so much there and he didn't have the help. He didn't have faith around him. And every year that Tibbs was here, the Wolves were a bottom six defense. Again, all of that is worth noting because broadly, the Wolves, again, are dropping pick and rolls with Cat and then Noah Vonley when Vonley's in for Cat. If you're at a Wolves game, you can hear those two calling out blue, 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 which is David Vanterpool, who's the new defensive coordinator. That's his terminology for the drop. The, the screen is set. When, he, when the, those guys are announcing blue, that means they're not coming up the show. They're dropping back towards the rim. The big difference here, though, is this year is they're having, rather than having Cat do that sort of backpedal towards the rim with the guard, they're running what is referred to as a deep drop. And that eliminates the backpedaling and essentially just ask Cat to get right to or Von Lee to get right in front of the rim. You're already there and you're even more willing to say, come in a little bit closer. Take a 10-foot mid-range shot. Take that floater over us. We're going to be there at the rim. And Cat's done a good job of that. There, there's less for him to read. There's less space to defend in those situations. And he's he's towed that line of being able to stay with the big versus stay with the the guard who's coming at him effectively. And I think what we've really seen, particularly with Noah Vonley, is the other advantage of a deep drop is, is the ability to kind of take away the lob pass. We saw Brooklyn try and go lobs to Jared Allen and to, to DeAndre Jordan. But because Noah Vonley was so deep in there, um, that's, that's just a much harder pass to, to make. And with Vonley, you know, he has a nine-foot standing reach. It's pretty easy for him to get up and, deflect or at least just get in the way of one of those lob passes to them the downside is a cleaner pull-up look for those guys and that's kind of all we saw Kyrie go off um, in the first you know in that first game against Brooklyn but at the rim the Wolves have been contesting that's why if you pull up those what are the opponents shooting against the Wolves in the restricted area those numbers are low because you have you have a big there every single time at the rim to at least um, to at least get a contest the the best comparison I can make to the way that the Wolves are running this is is to the scheme Milwaukee ran last year with um, with Eric Bledsoe as their guy who they would have defending the the point guard in a pick and roll situation, and then Brooke Lopez was that center dropping deep to the rim as they're asking Cat to do now. It is worth noting a couple things there though, and not to. So we don't get ahead of ourselves and assume that the Wolves are just going to be one of the best defenses in the league like Milwaukee was last year. 
Eric Bledsoe is excellent at blowing up ball screens and getting over the top of them or sliding under and staying on the hip of the ball handler there, pushing him all the way into, you know, Brooke Lopez at the rim. Jeff Teague, that's certainly not one of his strengths. And then Brooke Lopez, he's just elite at being big. He stays fairly upright if you watch Milwaukee play and he just has his arms out, wings spread. And if the guard is able to get through Bledsoe, then they have that splash mountain obstacle to get through to the rim. The downside of this as it's compared to the Wolves is Cat is a lot smaller than Lopez. And in that situation, well, it's great that Cat is much more athletic and versatile than Lopez. In that specific setting, it's more of an advantage to just be big and to be able to contest that shot that the guard is, you know, bringing towards the rim. I think you, those who have watched, you know, we kind of know that Cat is a little more hunchy in his, in his defensive stance and that, you know, it just kind of shrinks him a little bit. They need him to be big in the way, defending shots at the rim and trying to take away that lob threat. The other part that is different about the Bucks versus the Wolves is Milwaukee had Giannis as, or has Giannis as that free safety who kind of has the opportunity to stunt into those actions. And when you have Giannis there, good luck throwing a lob pass to the rim because then he's just going to come flying in to take that away. The Wolves do have Robert Covington in that role, and he's certainly an elite defender in his own right, but it is it is a little bit different, and this is something that's new for Covington this year to be put in that off that off ball role because what we saw last year is that more often Covington was the guy guarding the point guard in those situations. So when I was uh, when I was in Brooklyn last week, I, I asked Ryan Saunders if he does you know, as Kyrie's going off about to score 50, if he had the temptation to put Covington on onto the point guard there, or if he just has that temptation going forward. And this is what Saunders said. Yeah, you're tempted, but we also have our reasons within the system for right now. That's something we'll probably, we will probably eventually move towards Robert being a guy who is guarding a ball handler like that. But you also got to remember we're smaller. So a lot of times if he's guarding a guy like Torian Prince or those guys, they're good rebounders. So if we put a smaller guy on him, it's tough for us down there, and we know we have to get rebounds. To me, this is a, it's a good question right now, and it's kind of the opportunity cost of, of using Robert Covington as the power forward on this team. By sliding him to the four, he isn't guarding those point guards. Last year, some of Covington's best individual games, not just his best individual games, but the Wolves' best defensive games as a team, came when Covington was matched up on a Damian Lillard or a Kemba Walker. And for now, that's not happening because he's the power forward and they don't really have the shift they can make to cover all that. So that's the, I don't know yet. I don't know what the, if that is a negative opportunity cost or what, how, how it will all shake out. But it is, by having that be Jeff Teague or Shabazz Napier, you are, you are limiting yourself a little bit defensively because it's not Robert Covington at the point of attack. The other element that is of this scheme that will probably eventually present itself as a weakness, and it's something that has hurt uh, Milwaukee, is that when you are dropping the big back like that, the big man can just, the big offensive big man can just pop out for an open, you know, run a pick and pop for an open three in that, in that sort of situation. And it's really hard to get back and recover out there to contest that shot. That is a big part of the reason that Milwaukee allowed the most 
three-point attempts in the NBA, or more than anyone else in the NBA last season. So it's going to be something worth monitoring. Obviously, the results through three games are good. Again, I said 10 points per 100 possessions better. That's a meaningful, meaningful difference from how this team was executing last year. But it's going to take – teams are going to realize it. The book's going to get out there. They're going to say, okay, if you're just going to keep Cat at the rim, we're going to pop – Maybe Al Horford on Wednesday night for Philadelphia. We'll just keep popping him, and we'll just give him open three after open three. So there will be adjustments to be made, which I think brings us to the switching question. We heard all summer, all fall, that this team was going to be switchy, and that probably needs some explanation. If the Wolves or any team are running a drop scheme as their base system defensively, you're inherently not switchy. That is not what you are doing. If we are defining it by how you defend a pick and roll. That said, pick and rolls, the screens that come in those are not the only screens set on the floor. There are off-ball screens. And it's here where we're seeing the Wolves switch with a greater frequency. Off the ball, particularly against Charlotte, we saw the Wolves' wings switching freely. If Trevion Graham's mans had a screen on Jake Lehman's, that was an easy switch. Or Josh Okogie and Andrew Wiggins, Jarrett Culver and Graham, whatever. Those guys can all be deemed switch partners against more or against most teams. And so we are seeing switching in that capacity, but not as a whole group. I asked Ryan Saunders um, after the game in Charlotte what, you know, what the balance is for them between or who it is they're going to be switching against versus when they won't switch. And this is what he said. It was largely similar in terms of what Charlotte runs and what Brooklyn runs. They run similar types of sets. We have certain times and certain lineups that we're going to switch two through four, and we're going to switch one through five or two through five or one through four. He started with two through four because that's what they've been doing so far. So far, all three opponents, including Miami, the Wolves have been willing to switch those three wings they have, the shooting guard, the small forward, and the power forward. Now, it'll be interesting to see how that adjusts against a team like Philadelphia on Wednesday who can both attack the rim with Ben Simmons and have their bigs, Al Horford and Joel Embiid, pop out to three. Broadly, though, for now at least, we should think of this scheme as one that has switching in it but is not what we traditionally think of as a switchy group. It's not, it's not Tristan Thompson switching out to defend Steph Curry like we saw in the NBA finals for all those years in a row. It isn't, it isn't that they aren't, the wolves are not willingly putting their bigs out onto the point guard. Okay. Let's get into some player specific things. And Andrew Wiggins is, I think the one we, um, before we get into any sort of like Trevion Graham, Noah Vonley, Jordan Bell weeds, it's, it's worth, um, it's worth touching on what Andrew Wiggins has done more. For me, uh, a lesson I, I've learned in these first few games is to be a little more patient and a little more, a little less reactionary. Um, how he starts a game or a bad stretch he has in the middle of the game, we don't need to look as at as definitive. We learned that both in Brooklyn and against Miami that he can have a bad stretch and still be a meaningful, positive contributor at another time of the game. So basically, what I'm just saying, and mostly just to myself, is preaching patience and seeing they're going to be using him, so it's not going to go away. I think 
we need to acknowledge that Andrew Wiggins is remaining a high-volume player on this team. And it doesn't matter how he starts the game. They're going to continue to go to him. He is the perimeter creation option on this team. The new system changes. They're not going to fix him for the full 48 minutes. He's not going to alt- magically turn into James Harden. But it should make it so that there are not full games where he absolutely kills the offense. They're committed to getting him going the whole time. And it doesn't matter if he's missed six shots. They're going to continue to try and run instigating sets to get him to attack the rim and to get him those three-point shots with the hope that in the aggregate, he will become a more meaningfully positive player. That's the goal, at least. And it's worth being patient with, I think, at least in the middle of the game and not totally getting caught up in, all right, he's missed six straight threes or this. Because if the game the game's close at the end of the game, they're going to give it to him because they don't have another real creation option from the wing. And that's just when you get into the half court with under, you know, five minutes left in the game, you kind of got to go to those players. We Again, we saw that in Brooklyn and we saw it in Miami. And actually in both of those situations, I guess more so in Miami, you know, Wiggins was kind of up to that challenge. And, um, you know, it, he is embracing some of the shift. And even though there are some habits there, he still has to break. This is what Ryan Saunders had to say of Wiggins after after the Miami game. And I thought this was a really interesting and telling quote where he's 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 putting himself firmly in the Andrew Wiggins believer bin. It's tough. It is. Or I'll start. Quote. It's tough. It is. Because it is complete change in system and philosophy, philosophy from maybe what he's used to. Not to say that he was ever wrong by any means, but it's just we're doing things different moving forward. So with that, we're going to have some situation where he has to break habits, I guess. Everybody knows how hard it is to break a habit, so he has to break a habit. That's what. That's why I do priest patience, but we do also need to have accountability with things too. And I didn't like a few of his shots early and some of those things, but I think he was able to kind of regather himself. So if you didn't watch the Miami game or maybe just miss this, Saunders did bench Wiggins in, in the second quarter and went to Jake Lehman to 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 close off that half because he didn't like what he saw out of him and then, you know, did end up putting Wiggins back into his same role in the second half, and it seemed to make somewhat of a difference. So Saunders continued by saying this, I'm very proud of Wig. I know everybody knows how I feel about Wig. He's going to have a very good year, and it's going to take time for all of it to come together with our emphasis and changing of systems, but he's going to have a good year. I'm in his corner, and I want to make sure he knows that. We're, we are all also looking to do things the right way too because we do have a plethora of wings on this team that can go, we can go to as well, and these guys know that. So that's kind of a, a th- I don't know if it's a threat, but it's an assertion that if Wiggins is struggling, they'll just go to another one of those wings and, and say, hey, you're not, you're not abiding by what the system is. You're, you're falling back into that habit, and, and if you don't change that, then we're going to come and get you. And what I think has been the most surprising is how the way in which Andrew Wiggins has kind of embraced this and publicly been like, yeah, I, I know I need to change these things and I want to be held accountable for, for such. He, he said this after the game. I wasn't playing like myself. I made a lot of dumb decisions and I had told him, he's talking about Ryan here, we have to hold each other accountable to keep us accountable. If I do something wrong, make me pay for it. He did that and I feel like that woke me up. I've got to be better. He didn't want me to just lounge around or nothing. When I'm on the court, he wants me to work. That's what he expects. 
and that's what I'm going to give him. Woo, those are, those are some words, and the Andrew Wiggins journey continues. On to Trevion Graham, which is, again, a little bit more into the weeds, but it is worth noting that he has been the fifth starter in, in all three of these games. Those of you who have listened to this and maybe bought into it, our assumption was that Jake Lehman was going to be the fifth starter next to Teague, Wiggins, Covington, and Towns. And if anything, I thought, if it wasn't going to be Lehman, that they'd go to Josh Okogie because that's who they would, they would prioritize some defense in that way. And I think it, they did t- Ryan did take that lane of logic by going with Graham because Graham is defensively motivated, right? He is, he's the guy who is going to help in that role. He's going to be the low-usage guy who, in theory, boosts the defense. And what we've seen is he's a try-hard, work-hard professional, and he's brought defensive intensity to every game. And he just kind of falls into a low-usage role. I think we want to see his shot get a little bit better, but that might just be kind of the, the balance is he, he gives you the defense and situationally he'll give you some shooting. I do think it is um, worth noting that Saunders has said, even since the season started, that that fifth starter role is going to be a bit of an evolving door. Our, our first evidence of that came from Lehman closing the game against Miami. He ended up playing 26 minutes and Graham only played 20. So he didn't start that game, but he finished it. We, we know that Saunders likes to go with feel, and I think that's going to show up um, in like the in-game flow of rotations over the course of the year. And it might be also sort of a, a feel, a matchup-based choice against different type of opponents where is this a Trevion Graham game? Is this a Jake Lehman game? I think that should kind of be our assumption going forward. I'm really curious to see um, who starts against that jumbo 76ers lineup on Wednesday. I think we can assume that a Kogi is going to stay in the sixth man role. Um, and he is not the has, it hasn't obviously started and doesn't look like he's going to not because he doesn't deserve it, but he feels like the sixth man of this team. And he was the first sub into the game against Charlotte. When the wolves came out super flat, they were down 19 to four in that game. And a gave him energy. He gave him energy last night, too, against Miami. And it's, it's kind of on the defensive side. It's, it's like the Lou Williams burst of injecting energy into the group, except with Josh, it's, a, it's an injection on the defensive side of the ball. And I guess so far that's worked. It's just that's what they've needed is somebody to be kind of chaotic out there and getting the loose balls, getting in the passing lanes, you know, wreaking havoc on, on the offense. And the energy that he's brought has been undeniable. No game was that more clear than that Charlotte game where how the Wolves were playing completely shifted on a dime into an energetic bunch when Shikogi, uh, once Akogi came in, and he wasn't just doing it on offense. If you, you watch that game, you remember Akogi's first possession into the game. He had a little pump and go, drove into the lane, dropped it off to Cat, who got an and one dunk. And from there... Cat got hot. He made 12 of his next 14 shots. I mean, it was the rest of the game, but Cat had started slow. He was missing bunnies. He was missing threes. That it was it was that dunk where it changed for Cat. And that doesn't happen if it's not a Kogi. He he did it. And I really am just seeing I I don't know if the term is mid-season form, but Josh looks comfortable right away from the beginning of the year in a way that a lot of other guys, not just on this team, but around the league, don't. And I, I think it's a lot of credit to 
to him for playing with Nigeria over the course of the summer and, you know, polishing his game a little more or at least being more polished to start the year than the, you know, the, the rest of this, this group has been. I'm always concerned with him. The whole, is this energy endless? Like, I think last year he kind of did hit that rookie wall a little bit. Maybe that comes quicker this year because he played all summer. I don't know. Right now the energy has been unreal, and it, it has been – I mean, without Josh Okoge, this team is not 3-0. On the other side of the polish equation, unfortunately, there's Jared Culver, who um, he has not looked comfortable at all in these, in these three games. I don't think it's anything to freak out about or anything. Three games, he's in a different role, and yes, I know – Kobe White is going off for the Bulls, and that's great. Um, but but Culver, Culver's just kind of finding his way, and I think he's a little bit uncomfortable with the role. Not that it's necessarily a bad role to give him. They can't just toss him 35 minutes right away you know, to start the year. I just think a big part of it is at Texas Tech. He was the point guard, the point forward of that team, and we, haven't, we saw it in preseason, but in the regular season we haven't seen – we haven't seen any point guard role for for Jarrett Culver thus far, and he's just been in there with Shabazz Napier or at times with Jeff Teague, who Napier for sure. I mean, he, he's been great, but it does take the point guard duties away, and then Culver's just kind of floating around as that, as that extra wing. I, I really think it will be it would be really beneficial to give Culver some sort of six minutes or so stretch in one of these games where he's initiating the offense. I think that might be what it takes to just kind of be like, deep breath. All right, I'm, I'm comfortable. The ball is in my hand. It doesn't mean take a bunch of shots. It's just, I think for him, he, there is an added comfort in just starting a possession on the top of the key or on the wing with the ball in his hands, getting that screen and starting to, you know, initiate the offense. For now, it looks like we'll need to wait for a Teague or a Napier injury or foul trouble or something to get to see some of that. But for me, um, I'm at least holding off on some judgment until I can, until I've seen at least one stretch of Jarrett Culver. I'm like, okay, you were comfortable there. That's what you've got. I don't think we've seen him even sort of, he's still in preseason mode. We got it. We got to have him have his first good regular season run before we start making assumptions as to who he is. The last player I do want to throw some props to is, uh, is Noah Vonley. Um, I've been on here this summer, very concerned about Vonley maybe taking a bigger role in this offense than he should. Uh, that's what he was in New York last year. He was bombing up shots and he was looking for, he was looking for his shot consistently. And there was, you know, I, I had the concern that maybe he would take too much of the pie in Minnesota. But I think what we've learned is it turns out that that's just what the Knicks were telling him to do. And he willingly obliged to do it, to do that. And he looked for his shot this year. He's also being, he's doing what he was told to do. And what that's been is be a low usage backup to cat. He's, he's used a ton of discernment on his shot selection. And he really seems to be focusing more on, on his defense, which has legit been great. I ripped, I ripped on his preseason defense and that looks really wrong right now in that drop scheme that we were talking about. He's been phenomenal, even better than Cat, who's been good. It's that's that's his role. He 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 gets to the rim, and he knows it's his job to wall up. We saw him do the quote unquote verticality thing a bunch 
against Miami there at the end of the night. In the third quarter, Vonley gave him a Josh Okogie-esque boost. Um, this is his role. He's The Wolves are only playing two bigs. They, they play... They play one guard, three wings, and one big. That's all they've done so far, and it's Cat and Vonley, and that's it. Um, he's won that role over Jordan Bell and Gorgie Jang. Uh, the sense I'm getting from maybe some of you on Twitter is that people think Bell isn't playing because he's hurt, and I, that's not the case. Ryan Saunders said last night that it isn't the case. It's that they've got about 35 minutes a night for Cat, and then Vonley's filling in the rest. This is what Saunders said, quote, We've had conversations with every player on – on what their role is. He played 13 minutes tonight. I mean, he's got other bigs that are talented as well that haven't been getting any minutes in Jordan Bell and Gorgie Jang. The unfortunate thing for Noah is he's got Carl Anthony Towns in front of him. So there's not just a lot of, there's just not a lot of big minutes, especially when you're playing smaller like we are. But he's been great in terms of accepting that and knowing that they might be quick stints for him just to go and do his job. And then those other guys, talking about Bell and Jang, They've been great in terms of wanting their teammates to just succeed. The other thing, end quote, the other thing I've been getting from Twitter is the notion that people believe that Bell is a far better athlete than Vonley. And I'm not sure that that's true. I think that they're different types of athlete. Bell is certainly a faster straight line runner than Vonley. And he's laterally quicker too. But the thing is, in this system... Well, those attributes are more valuable in a switch-heavy system. Again, that's what the Wolves are not, particularly with their bigs. That's what Golden State was, sure. So Bell looked decent in that setup. But if the Wolves are going to continue to just run a scheme in the way they are, where they're just switching two through four, then Bell is going to be more so asked to do the things that Vonley is even doing is doing so well right now. And it's hard to it's hard to make a bet that. Jordan Bell, who's smaller, weighs less, has a shorter wingspan, is going to be a better rim defender than Noah Vonley has been. So until they switch, start going out to wanting to switch two through five or one through five, you know, I I don't think we're going to see Jordan Bell in any of the lineups. Maybe at some point they're going to get to that. Um, But right now the Wolves, the only time they've played two bigs next to each other was in the garbage time of the Charlotte game where Bell and Jang were playing next to each other in Charlotte. Other than that, they've exclusively run one guard, three wings, and and one big. Cat and Vonley, they're the only bigs that are going to play unless one of these thing, two things happen. Cat gets in foul trouble, slash hurt, knock on wood, or two, they opt to run a two-big lineup against a bigger team. Maybe that's Philadelphia on Wednesday. I don't know. We know Ryan and we know Gerson has said, all summer that they want teams to shift to the way they're playing and not to adjust in the, in the other way. We're saying, you know, we want teams to play small and fast if we're playing small and fast and we're not going to overcorrect to going bigger. Now, Philadelphia is a, is a different sort of monster because they, they start four players who are taller than Robert Covington and Covington is the wolves power forward. So does that mean the wolves are going to need to adjust does that mean they need to start Noah Vonley? Do they need to go with two bigs all game? I don't know. I don't think the Wolves will overcorrect that much, but it could be one of those situations, kind of like what Miami did last night where they started with two bigs out against the Wolves and Myers Leonard's out on Cat, 
and Cat just punishes him in the first quarter, and then Eric Spolster just kind of throws that away. I don't know. Could that happen for the Wolves where they go really small in the first quarter against Philadelphia, end up getting beat up, and then they go to two bigs? Maybe. It's going to be, that game is going to be a hell of a test. We know the last time that the Wolves were in Philadelphia, they lost 149 to 107. That was the Jimmy Butler return game or the first time the Wolves played them there. And it's a it's a real prove your 3-0 game. It's it's against a team that, you know, punches so many of the holes in what we perceive the Wolves to be good at. And they put pressure, they're going to put pressure on the Wolves' weaknesses. How are the Wolves going to match up? Does Covington guard Simmons? Is he guarding the point of attack guy like Ryan said he's been tempted to do? Does that mean sliding Trevion Graham on Al Horford? Yikes, I, that's a real... That's a real height discrepancy if you want to go that way. Could we see a completely different starting lineup, a, a totally new rotation where all of a sudden now Jordan Bell and Gorgie Jang are in there? There are questions that are going to be answered on Thursday night. It's going to be such a great test of how real this excellent start is because it's Philadelphia is probably the team that puts the most pressure on who we perceive this new Wolves team to be. On Thursday, Charlie Johnson and I will be back to break that one down. Until then, go back in your feed. Uh, If you didn't already listen, Gerson Rosas came on this podcast uh, last week and kind of talked about what this has has looked like so far and what he's seeing the uh, identity of this this group come to be. Um, Other than that, check out zonecoverage.com. I'm kind of going to do a written version of what we just sort of talked through here on there, maybe more so than I'm able to do here on a podcast. I'll be able to point out with video some of those X's and those, some of the schematic things that we have seen uh, transpire so far. Um, until then, that's all I got for you. I'm Dane. Peace out. How I'm feeling, man, I hope it never stops, yeah. Green and hot so you can find me in the crowd, yeah, yeah. Don't let standards ever, ever bring you down, yeah. Hope you dancing like nobody else around.